For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're in John 14, and we're getting toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, His time with the disciples is coming to an end. And if you think about it from the disciples' perspective, they've been seeing Jesus in action now for years. This would be no small thing. God come to dwell among us, hanging out, doing these miracles, raising people from the dead, giving the blind sight to live with him, to hear him teach And not just in the public forum, but I'm talking about sitting around the campfire after everyone else is gone and just chewing the fat with God would really be something. To be able to ask him questions, to observe him, to to connect with him. These guys are in this incredible position where they've had unprecedented access to the nature of their creator. And his mission has reached this pinnacle, this turning point where he has come, he's told us he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come to help us understand what it is that God wants from us, who it is that God is, and he's about to go to the cross to take on the penalty for all sin, for all time upon himself so that we can be made right with God. And that's going to change the dynamic of this band of disciples who have been hanging out with Jesus pretty much 24-7 for years. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And so what we see as the cross looms close and these final hours that Jesus has with his disciples... We start to get very poignant, very concentrated teaching where Jesus is preparing them for the next step in God's plan. How to carry this on. So we get to John 14, 1 through 6, and Jesus says to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. He's saying, you know, this is not the end. This is not the end of us being together. We have all of eternity moving forward, and I am going to make sure to secure your place in eternity. That is why, I've, <coughs> why I have come, why I'm here. And he wants them to be reassured that he's not going to abandon them, that they are going to be given the difficult task of carrying on the work. And he is not going to be among them in the same way that he had been among them before. And key in that understanding needs to be the confidence that they can have that Christ is with them and that their eternal destination is secured. When we studied a few weeks ago where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, 
It said he was confident in who he was. He was confident that he had been sent by God. And he was confident in where he was going. And if the disciples are going to carry on this work, it's going to be very difficult. And they are going to need to know. To have absolute confidence that God has taken care of them and their eternal destination is secure. They need to trust Christ. And so he gives them this little speech and he says, you know, I'm going, where I'm going, I'll come back and get you and it'll all be good and you know the way. And I love Thomas. Thomas is, is maybe the most blunt disciple He's just very frank, very forward. If he doesn't understand something, he lets you know. And there's a little bit of cynicism from time to time where he just kind of comes in with this cutting thing. And so Thomas is listening to this, and he's like, "Uh, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. What are you talking about? This really doesn't make a lot of sense to us. How do we know the way when we have no idea where you're going? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus, you know, is, is connecting with these disciples and making these promises. And he's saying, I'm going somewhere to prepare and you know the way. And Thomas says, not only do we not know the way, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus' response here is so important. This is one of the hardest and, 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 and also most important things that Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, the path to eternal life is a relationship. Salvation and eternal life is not something, it's not a journey that you go on where there's various waypoints, there's various hoops that you have to jump through, there's very, various tasks that have to be completed. A lot of religions teach that, and a lot of us just think naturally about that. We think, well, you know, you go to point A to point B to point C, and you build up points with God, and eventually, if you get enough points, then you're in, yay, but nobody knows how many points, so you've got to collect as many as you possibly can. That's the way that we tend to naturally think about things, that God has this, you know, sort of mysterious plan, and you just have to be as good as you possibly can, and hopefully that'll be good enough. We'll find out when we get there. But that is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that salvation is not about what we do. It's about who we know. It's about a relational connection with God. Do you want to know God? Are you willing to ask Jesus Christ into your life? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And our culture really struggles with that because it seems so exclusive. It just seems like, you know, it's got the haves and the have-nots. And, you know, it raises all these questions in our heads about, you know, what people know and where are they going and what about all the other religions? And we have to wrestle with this. Jesus said it in very plain and a very clear way. I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, it's very popular to think that, you know, there are this idea that there are many paths that lead to the same place. This is something that, you know, 
really resonates with us. It really feels like, oh yeah, just everybody's on the same journey and we've just got different ways of getting there. And, you know, I myself especially, I mean, that is something that, you know, is very warm. It's just very, no one wants to say this group is wrong and these people are wrong and these people are right. And, you know, this seems like the kind of thing that wars get fought over and people get killed over. And why why do we have to exclude people? But the problem with this statement is it has a very important presupposition underneath it. And the presupposition underneath this is that there is no truth. There is no one God. There is no real God. All religion is speculation. And why is one person's speculation or one culture's speculation or one group's ideas and imagination, why would one be any better than any other? And if that were true, that there is no God, then that would This would be the way to go, absolutely, because faith does not have to correspond with reality. It can just correspond with preference. Faith becomes a non-moral issue like, which is better, chocolate or vanilla ice cream? That sense of, you know, taking it out of truth and putting it into the frame of personal preference is what our culture has done. It's, it's said there is no truth. But this is based, this whole concept of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is based on the concept that he believes the God of the Bible is real. He believes he is the God of the Bible. He has a will. He has thoughts. He has ideas. And he has come to rescue the human race from judgment. And the way that he's going to do that, it's not by giving us hoops to jump through, but by asking us a simple question, do you want to know me? Do you want me in your life? And that decision is up to us. It's a relationship. Acts 4, 10 through 12 puts it this way, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. This is a speech that Peter is giving after after Jesus' resurrection. Let all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, that is either the most diabolical, exclusive lie that could ever be told, or it's true. Those are really the only two ways of looking at what Peter said here or what Christ said in our passage in John 14. If it's true, it's so important. And it's not as though this is tied to one people or one race or, you know, one socioeconomic group. The Bible is clear that God wants all people to come to a knowledge of him. That he is spreading his word around the globe and sending his representatives and moving in the hearts of men so that all would come to a knowledge of him. But he is God. And he does have 
thoughts and a will. And there are things that are inside of God's will, and there are things that are outside of God's will. And the most important thing that God says that we need to know is that what is within his will is grace. The concept that we need to understand that there is a controversy between us and him because we are evil. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have rebelled. We are the reason for the pain and the suffering and the injustice of this world. And we like to shake our fist at him and say, why don't you do something about this? And he looks back at us and says, me? This is all the result of your choice. You are the problem. But I love you. And he sent his son to die for us, to take our place in the judgment that we deserve. And the question is simply, do we want to connect with God in a relational way through Christ's death on the cross, or do we want to continue to shake our fist at him and demand that we will stand on our own merits? That's the heart and soul of Jesus' mission of the teachings of all of Scripture and the human predicament before God. What Jesus is saying here is salvation is not a process. It's not, I can't give you a map. He says, I am going away to prepare a place for you and you will know, you know where I am and you know how to get there. And Thomas is like, "Mm, I don't think I do know. And Jesus says, Thomas, you know me. I am the way. If you know me, then you know the way. You have a relationship with me, so you have everything that you need. Because that's what this whole thing about. It's a decision that you make. Yes, we go through... A process, perhaps, where we want to understand the evidence, where we want to learn more. But we do not go through life becoming more and more saved as we go. We start separated from God and we make a decision at a certain point, a one-time decision to be united with God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth is a process. Once we make that decision, we begin the process of allowing God to transform our characters. We, we still struggle and we still sin and we still wrong people, but we begin to collect the tools to understand the tools that God has provided for us to become more like him. And that is a lifelong process. Hopefully it never stops where we grow And we change and we understand more and we become more patient, more kind, more loving, more giving of ourselves. That's the process that's called walking with God or that's called discipleship is being a learner, being a follower of God. But that begins with a one-time, in-a-moment decision. Do you want to be forgiven through Christ or do you reject Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He goes on in John 14, 10, he says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. When you're looking at me, Jesus says, you are seeing God. I do what God wants me to do. I am in him and he is in me. We are one and the same. To look at me is to understand who God is. And he says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than, he will, than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, I hope that you can see the depths in which we are plunging here. I said, you know, these are the last sort of final hours, and Jesus is really getting into some deep theological points, and he's stressing to them the oneness of himself and the Father. I only do what God's will is. God, the Father, is in me, and I am in him. We are one. The Father works through me, and I do what the Father says, and we are of the same mind. We are one with one another. And then he says, and I want you to be one with me in the same way that I am one with the Father. If you understand my will and you understand my commands and you live them out, then you are living within my will and you are getting on board with the mission. And I will send you out just as the Father has sent me. I will work through you just as the Father has worked through me. And he says this incredible thing, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. And you're like, well, I've heard that before, right? I ask it in your name. Jesus, I want a Ferrari. In your name I pray, <laughs> right? Every year I ask, Jesus, will the Brown, can the Browns win the Super Bowl this year? <laughs> and it's important that we understand the context and what he's saying here. First John and First John 5.14 makes it even more clear. And this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's not just like a magical incantation. You tack on the, in the name of Jesus on the end, and God all of a sudden is transformed into your genie. It's that as you work in him, as he works in the Father, when you ask for things that God wants to do, when you work within the will of God, I can confidently tell you that for I don't know how many years I have been sure that it has not been God's will that the Browns win the Super Bowl because I've asked. And I don't come to the conclusion, some erroneously come to the conclusion, well, you just didn't ask with enough faith, right? You just have to just sort of like somehow believe more and then God will give you it. And he's not giving it to you because you don't believe enough. And that runs us into a spiritual shipwreck because we ask for really important things like healing and protection for our children. And when we ask for such things that seem like, why would this not be within God's will? How can God not allow this? How can God not, not be on board with helping to protect my family? And terrible things happen, and people put it back on us. Well, if you just believed more, God would answer your prayers. 
then what do we turn God into? It's works. It's right back to, you know, we didn't, we didn't check all the boxes. We didn't jump through enough hopes. And that's not how God works. He has a plan and he has a will, and we don't always understand every aspect of how that works. But one easy way to find out the will of God is to pray for something. And you can be sure if it's answered, it is within God's will. And if it's not answered, it's either not within God's will or it's not within God's timing. He may answer it, but may not answer it on your schedule. His point, though, is is that I want to live and work with you, my disciples, the same way that the Father has lived in and worked with me. He's saying that my relationship with the Father and my mission and what you've seen and what I've been doing is a prototype. It's the beginning of a new plan that God has for rescuing the human race. I want you to work with me the same way that I work with the Father. Paul in Romans 8.29 put it this way, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he, being Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's what I mean by Jesus is the prototype. He's come and he's demonstrated not only who God is, but who we are supposed to be. Genesis tells us that we are created in the image of God. We're supposed to reflect the nature and the character of God. And in some ways we do. There are glorious things about man, incredible things about man. But it's also clear that we are a perverted, dark, twisted version of something that was meant to be noble and good. The darkness and the twistedness of who we are does not reflect who God is. And Jesus came, says, he who knew no sin, and he acted out the character and the nature and the will of God being God. And then he says, now I want to be in you, and I want to help you be more, not just like me, but I want to help you be what you were made to be. It's interesting, you know, the word Christian is a word that we throw around all the time, right? And the roots of that are in Latin with the Romans. And it started as a mock when, you know, people started becoming Christians. Christian means little Christ in Latin, right? And so people would come and they would took this very seriously. And they said, I want to be like God. I want to, I want to have God's character and I want to treat people like God would treat them. I want to love people like Jesus has loved me and like he loved others. And they'd be like, oh, you're a little Christ. And they were like, I suppose so. That's the goal. I want to be like Christ. I'm a Christian. And this is the concept then that moves in and that it pervades the idea of what it is to grow and what it is to be in Christ, to be a follower of his. Hebrews 2.11 says it in a fascinating way. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What blows me away here is what he is saying is, is that when you come to Christ, when you receive God's love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. 
And God the Father becomes our Father in the same way that He is Jesus' Father. And Jesus becomes our big brother. And when He looks at us, His followers, with all of our problems and all of our foibles, He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Wow. Either He doesn't know me, the real me, or he doesn't work like we work. Because if you were that good and you knew what was in my heart, I think you would be ashamed. But he's not. How does Jesus live in us? How does this work? What is it that's being discussed here? He continues on in 16 and he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, that is the spirit of truth with which the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Oh my gosh. So much to unpack here. Who is this helper? This is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm going to ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God, and then the Holy Spirit is going to come. And the Holy Spirit is the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the Son. This is me. And He is going to come give you what you need to carry on the mission. And I am going to be with you through the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6 says, And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate servants. When we think about what it means to be little Christs, it's like, <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, I don't, I mean, I would love to love people like Jesus loves people. But I have tried so hard and in so many ways to be a patient person, to be a kind person, to be somebody who consider the needs of others as more important than, them, than themselves, to lay down my life for my friends. I would love, I would love, I think most of us, honestly, if there was a switch and we could just flip the switch and then we would be like Jesus, loving people even to death, a lot of us would flip that switch. But in the day-to-day practice of living that out is where we find the difficulties. And what God is saying here is recognizing your inadequacy is the beginning of change, of growth. You cannot do this on your own. You need God's power. And Jesus is saying that power is going to be provided for you In the Holy Spirit, which is going to come and dwell within you and give you the power to change. Romans 8.26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit is not an it. Do you notice that? It's a him. 
And what he's saying is, is that we have all these problems. We don't even really know how to talk to God. We don't even really know what to pray for. And the Spirit of God comes and empowers us and leads us and guides us and carries us forward. If only we will listen. And he says that Spirit will be with us forever. He doesn't come, you know, for a visit. The Holy Spirit comes and is sealed within us as a promise of God's commitment to us. What could be more of a commitment? I am going to permanently live with you forever and be with you in all things and in all ways. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Notice the order of operations. You listen to this message of God's love and forgiveness. You believe. And then you are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. God wants to come set up house in your heart and stay forever so that you can be confident and know who you belong to, where you are going, and the resources that you have available to carry out God's will in your life. It's called the spirit of truth, Jesus says, This Holy Spirit that comes and indwells those who will receive Him guides them. And this is is kind of a bizarre thing. But many of us here will tell you that, uh, you know, we understand that there's an inner monologue, right? We have weird things going on in our head all the time that we, that's me, right? And then we have a conscience that's always been there for most of us right? But then there's this other thing. And it's not something that's irresistible. It's not something that you, you know, that controls you. But it does speak. It encourages you. It brings scripture to mind. It helps you decide. It's there. It's trying to lead you and guide you, but it's not trying to control you. And many of us have had the experience of talking to other people, of being used by God in someone else's life, where you're talking and they're talking about what's going on in their life, and then something comes out of your mouth that helps them, that you didn't really mean to say. And their eyes get big, and they're like, wow. And you're like, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) You want to take credit for it immediately. That's all what you always want to do. But you know something just happened there where God used you. The Holy Spirit just ministered, just served that person through you. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus did all the time. And that's what he wants us to do more and more is let the Spirit of God Guide us 
in helping us love others. Jesus says in John 6, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. You are going to be walking around with the spirit of God within you who will speak and guide, but not control. And he says that the world, though, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. That there is a disconnection because God cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness. And our righteousness does not come by our deeds. It doesn't come by what we do. It comes because we have come to the point where we've realized we cannot do it on our own. And that Jesus covers our sin and makes us righteous by virtue of who he is and what he did on the cross. And so God can then take up residence within you because your sin has been paid for. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one is a sinner and the other is a a righteous liver. The difference is, is one has admitted they're a sinner and that they can't do it on their own. And God said, is that is prerequisite. You have to understand that you were not made to be separate from me and that you are broken when you are separate from me. Then I can come and live within you. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You want me to consider the needs of others as more important than myself? Are you kidding me? Who could do that? You want me to turn the other cheek and love my enemy and consider that Spiritual things are more important than material things. This is the foolishness of God. And to those who don't know him, it just sounds like it makes no sense. How can the Spirit be within you? And how can the Spirit guide you when you don't understand the order of the universe and what really matters is not things, is not comfort, is not fun, but love, but relationship. Your family and your friends and your God and your community, these are the things that will fill you up, that will make you whole, that will give you purpose and will bring you joy. But we live for entertainment We live for money, we live for drugs, we live for stimulation, we live for things that titillate the body, but do nothing for the soul. And God says the soul is the only part of you that is eternal. So without Christ and without his covering, the spirit cannot take up residence within us. But it is God literally living within you. And what's interesting, I think, is this has been God's plan all along. All the way back from the very beginning, God has always wanted to be as close and connected with us. He wants us to have 
volition. He wants us to have will. He wants our choices to matter. He doesn't want to make cookie cutter people that all like look and talk and dress and act and eat exactly the same things. He wants us to be individuals, but he wants us to be individuals connected with him and therefore connected with one another. All the way back in the book of Exodus, God is talking to the people of Israel in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. He says, now then, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What God wanted was a nation of people who would follow him, who would be an example to others of who he is, and who would blow the doors off this fallen, broken world with some hope and some love. He wanted to dwell among them so that the ent- all of them, the entirety of the nation, would be his representatives on the earth. Leviticus 26, 11, and 12 says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God said, oh, we're going to go camping. We're going to spend 40 years wandering around the desert, but I'm going to have my tent in the middle of all of your tents. I'm going to be right there with you. And they were like, "Mm, how close? (laughs) God wants to be intimate with you, connected with you. The prophet Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day I took them on the hand to bring them out of Egypt. You see what he's saying? I wanted to dwell among you and live in the tents among you, but there's coming a time where we're going to go down and we're going to shift to a new program. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, But this covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The law was written on stone tablets, and he says, those stone tablets are not going to be needed because I'm going to write them on your hearts. I'm going to live. My will and who I am is going to live within you. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my ways and my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and then they will be my people and I will be their God. Do we see the heart of God? He's spending all this time through the centuries just looking forward to the day where we would be his. He wants us to be his. And we're just like, "Eh." I mean, I want a place for God in my life. But do I want to live with God forever? Do I want him to take up residence within me? I've got some things that I'd like to do that, frankly, I'm not sure I want God on board for. And yet he calls and he calls and he calls and he offers and he moves and then he comes and he lives and he dies because he's earnest 
to make this happen. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, 10, now we're moving into the New Testament, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the people that he's talking to are from every race, every people, every background. He's saying there was once nothing that brought you together. No nation, no nationality, no sense of who you are. You're from different languages, different faith backgrounds, all these different things. But because you have come to Christ You are a people. The vision of God to make a nation of priests, a community of people that would represent him and bring his love into the dark places is fulfilled in the church. That God would bring us together. We here are one people. And any who would choose to join us would be welcome because of the common bond that we have as the sons and daughters of God and the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes now, right? He's definitely ramping up his game, communicating this is going to happen and you guys got to be ready And they've got to be thinking after seeing all that Jesus has done, after understanding and seeing the miracles that he has pulled, the teachings that he has given, the way that he's serving, and he's saying he's going to die and he wants them to carry on the work. Just be like, oh, me? You want us to do this without you? You're going to go away? And that's just exactly Jesus' point is, no, you're not going to do it without me. You're going to do it with my spirit, the Holy Spirit that's going to come, and the Holy Spirit and I are one. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. My body, my physicality... It's not going to be here on earth any longer. And you all are so wrapped up in what you can see, taste, touch, and smell. And that's not going to be the way that I'm going to be with you. But you will see me because I live. You will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Just as the Father is true and is in me, I am going to come in the Holy Spirit and be true and live in you and that is how we are going to make this thing happen, he says. You know, I I think it would have been completely reasonable for the disciples just to be like, "Ah, that doesn't sound possible. Jesus is great, but I can't be like him. I can't love like Jesus loves. I can't give and be generous. And frankly, if God was so smart and so wise and all-knowing, I think he would know that about me. There has to be some kind of mix-up here, some kind of mistake, if God is looking at me and saying, yep, I want you to go save the world from its evil. 
be very easy to kind of revert back into that place and just say, who am I? I'm a drop in the water. What difference can I really make? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. God's got the perfect answer to that. Or say, God, have you looked in my heart? Have you seen what's there? And he's like, yeah. So you know I can't do this. And he's like, yeah. That's why this isn't a renovation project. We're going to knock it down and build from a new foundation. How's that sound? You're a new creature when you come to Christ. You are given a new self, a self that is capable of following God, a self that's empowered by his Holy Spirit. The disciples were no different from us. They were regular dudes. They weren't God like Jesus. They weren't particularly moral people. They weren't these righteous livers, these holy men. They were blue-collar guys, tradesmen. They were not scholars. They were not particularly or exceptionally bright. They were not particularly or exceptionally brave. They were normal people, average people, who met God and received the Spirit of God and changed the world. How many followers did Jesus have when he went to the cross, a handful. But within a short period of time, within a couple of hundred years, the disciples went out and they did what the Holy Spirit led them to do and they shared and they loved and they served and they died. And they helped others to do the same thing and within a few hundred years, the whole world had changed in its understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus goes on and says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said. Remember, I said the Holy Spirit calls up these things. And this is an incredibly important part of this passage because it leads us to our understanding of how Scripture works, how the Bible works. Why do we have confidence that the Bible's just not, you know, fallen men who decided to try to remember what Jesus said and write it down, you know, throw in a few things in there for themselves? Why do we say that the Bible is the Word of God? Because Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of these individuals and brought wisdom and remembrance so that they could write these things down exactly like they happened. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter writes, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. These people were chosen inspired, moved by the Holy Spirit to recall and remember and write down what God wanted and to have it preserved for us. So we not only have a community of people helping one another along the way, we not only have the all-powerful God of the universe dwelling in our hearts, we also have Scripture. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, curated and guided to show us the way 
to be that nation of God's people. So what do we learn about God here? We've, all, we've been saying all along, the gospel, you, know, you look at Jesus and we begin to learn about God. What we learn there, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. The Trinity, God is a triune God. It's hard to understand, it's hard to grasp, but you can see the way, even in this passage that we've been looking at this morning, the Father and I are one. I am in Him and you are in me, and I am coming to you in the Helper. That God is of one essence, there is one God, but three persons. And that it is important to understand that when Jesus says, I am coming to you, and the helper is coming, he is saying those are one and the same thing. We also clearly see that God knows our failings, our shortcomings. He understands how we are inadequate, and he chooses to work through us anyway. He's not depending on you to have the strength to come through. He's waiting for you to have the willingness to say yes to him, and he takes care of everything else. We are not adequate, but we can be vessels. We can be conduits for his love. And we also learn that God wants such intimacy with us, he will literally come and permanently dwell in us. Even when we get married, what do we say? Till death do us part. I'll go as far as death. After that, we'll see. (laughs) God here says forever. I will live with you forever. That's how far I'm willing to go. The Spirit of God dwelling inside of him. I, I wonder about this. I think about this. You know, obviously, I believe in the power and the usefulness of language. I do a lot of talking. And so I believe that communication, verbal communication is good, but you know, you run into those times in your life and those situations with your spouse, with your kids, where there's really important things and you just don't seem to be able to get it across. You know, when you love somebody and you want them to know, you want them to feel like, it's just like, oh, I wish like I could take my spirit and just let my wife borrow it for a minute and then she could see When I say I love you, she would know what's in my heart. Because there are no words adequate to express. But if only she could know, right? That would be something, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great to just, your kid's like, you know, whatever I do, it's not good enough for you. And you're like, oh yeah, feel this. That's how much I love you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now give it back before I start feeling other things. But that is like, that's exactly what God has said. He says, I'm going to take my spirit and I'm going to put it inside of you so you will know we can communicate at the most intimate level. That's how much you matter to me. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13, for to us God has revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Right? That's what I was just talking about. Who really knows what's going on with me but me? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We'll leave you with this. It's time. It's time to receive this gift. It's time to turn to God and faith in your heart and to tell him, I do not want to stand on my own. If you want to come and live with me, I need you. And I know that I need Jesus to pay for my sins. That's that one-time decision that God will make good on if you turn to him in faith. Receive that adoption as sons and daughters. Open yourself to be a part of God's family, God's heart, God's spirit, and God's mission. Be empowered by his presence in your life. He will not overwhelm you. He wants you to be an individual, but he will speak, and he will move, and he will encourage, and he will admonish. And do not harden your heart to the Spirit of God as it speaks inside of you, but listen carefully and move and work with God and fulfill who it is that you were made to be as an image bearer of the Creator God and bring love and light and truth and compassion into a world that's desperate for it. God, we've got an incredible truth that we're wrestling with here wrapped up in it is the exclusivity of your claims that you are real that you are the way the truth and the life that you are the path to salvation and we've got a culture that says that if you disagree that that is hate and um, it's tragic God that we know that we can love anyone and that we do not have to agree we know that we can respect the faith of others. We can respect the teachings of other faiths. But that we need to live in a world where we can talk about truth and we can assess evidence and we can learn and grow and be challenged that the things that we feel might be true may not correspond with reality and we need to want to know that. And I just pray, God, that we can be a community of people that loves like no other, that gives like no other, that, that shares and connects and invites and um, includes like no other, but that is also committed to the teaching of your truth and the understanding of your ways, that you are the head of the church, you are our God, and that we would represent you clearly and accurately to a culture that seems to be further and further drifting away from understanding who you are. Be with us as we spend time here together this morning. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.